Okay, so this is a different one. I'm pretty excited about this one because I have three of these coming up that are similar to one another, and uh, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Okay. So I'm going to keep this pretty straightforward. This is an author series. I did not really plan it this way, but I think the next three episodes are all this. Um, basically, I have three episodes in a row where I'm interviewing an author about a book they wrote. Now, this is not the first time I've done this. I did this several years ago um, with Ali Babineau and her colleague Mandy. Um, and I've done this with uh, Netta Magbula, which was a re- one of my favorite episodes, and she ended up writing a blurb for my book. Um, but the thing is, the academic books, like, people don't tend to care, right? So I, I'll do it for academic books, and two of these are academic books. But the one I'm starting with is different. It is an academic. She is a professor. Uh, but this book is a mass market book. Like, it's a, it's a book published for the public. Um, which is to say she wrote it in a more accessible manner. And, and what I really want to talk to her about is, is, you know, the choices she made to sort of ensure that it was, you know, sound in the expertise she has, but communicable to the public. What did the editors say to her and so forth? This book is called Like Literally Dude. It's by uh, Dr. Valerie Friedland. Um, and, uh, well, I'll let her tell you what it's about, but basically it's a linguistics book for the public, which, of which there aren't very many. So I think that you'll be interested in this. Uh, the book is out. Uh, there, there will be a link for it in the show notes. And yeah, otherwise, if you want to support the show on Patreon, go ahead. And if you want to buy my book, there's also a link for that in the show notes. Okay. Oh, this name of the show is Unstandardized English, and we talk about neurologically, linguistically, and racially minoritized people. All right, folks, so welcome back to Unstandardized English. My name, as ever, is Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. I do this podcast to advocate for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. I am here today with Dr. Valerie Friedland, who has written Like Literally Dude. So before we get into the book, which I found very interesting when I consumed it last week, or was it the week before, uh, Dr. Friedland, Thanks for being here. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your research in general, and then we'll start talking about the book. Sure. And thanks for inviting me on the show. I'm happy to be here. So I'm a sociolinguist, which means that I study basically how language, generally its underlying structure and articulatory um, dispositions that we have as speakers, interact and engage with social triggers that make language change over time. So that's essentially me looking at small, low-level things in language that most speakers don't think about. So not necessarily vocabulary, although I look at that as well, but I, I'm very interested in sound changes and how sound changes come about and things like when we delete consonants, those kinds of things, and why they happen. So I look at them from an underlying language point of view, so how our brains work and how our mouths work to make these things happen. But then why, if we all have these underlying tendencies, don't they come out and make us all the same? Uh, that's social triggers. It's social facts about it. It's social identity. It's community. It's solidarity. It's self-expression. Those are the things I'm really interested in, how those shape language over time. 
And so that's in a nutshell what I do. Great. So um, this book, Like Literally Dude, it was released, I believe, April 18th. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll get into my thoughts in a second. But if you could tell folks in a nutshell, well, we just did the nutshell. Maybe it's a larger nutshell uh, <laughs> about what this is, uh, maybe what you were hoping to do with it. Um, and, uh, I am going to, because I, I'm always a little bit meta about it, ask you a little bit about, you know, some of the choices you made in like putting it together and that sort of thing. So, uh, absolutely. Uh, so the book, yes, the book is like literally dude. And the subtitle I think is very telling of my intentions. The subtitle is arguing for the good in bad English. And I think that's really the crux of what drove me to write the book. I noticed that as I gave a lot of public talks or every year when I started my class in sociolinguistics with my, you know, fresh faced students, I would ask people what they thought about language. So tell me what you notice about language. I don't say tell me bad things about language. I just say, tell me what you notice. Never once has anybody come to me and said, here's what I love about language. It's always, Here's what I hate that people say. Here's what really bothers me when people say. Or the public talks where people would generally come up and tell me to change the way other people talk rather than their own speech. And a lot of my students would also come to me with their own stories of feeling disadvantaged or um, dispreferred by the choices they make linguistically. And I realized that people don't understand how language comes to be and why we say the things we say. They just don't understand the science behind it, nor do they understand the history behind it. And instead of seeing these features for the complex, beautiful, sophisticated things they are, we see them as decay. We see them as bad. Um, And really, the truth is they're socially dispreferred, and they're socially dispreferred for reasons of class, for reasons of race, for reasons of gender. And so I wanted to try to bring together a book that took the features people ask me most about and explain them from a view of history, from a view of language, from a view of science, and try to let people join me in seeing the beauty behind their evolution. So on this show, I talk a little bit about, a little bit, a lot about just sort of academic writing, right? Um, and the structures of it and how much I don't like it. Uh, it, because part of the reason it took me a little while to decide to get a doctorate myself was because I was like, I don't want to write like that. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Don't worry. This is related to your point. I'm not, I'm just babbling here. Um, and once, I got a couple of articles published and I was able to get them published more or less within the style. Obviously they're still with the citations and all that there's form stuff, but um, I realized that the only reason that people aren't more adventurous in the way that they communicate in terms of academic stuff is because they are told not to be. And it got me thinking, especially as I was reading the book, which wasn't specifically about that, but, you know, that's a very a top-down version of language structure, academic writing, right? It's not, it's very, it's not descriptive, it's prescriptive, right? You know, like, this is how it has to be, and if you don't do it this way, it doesn't matter what points you're making, it's wrong. Um, and I've noticed also when people, because I'm very explicit in my in my work about my positionality and, you know, my identity and so forth, which uh, then people will go after my style before they go after my arguments. And I'm like, please, please take my arguments apart. That's where that's what I want. Right. I want to you know, I am not afraid for anyone to try to disagree with me. Right. But then 
they spend so much time on the style and the form, which is a deliberate choice I'm making. And I, I it's, it's such a, you know, it's like, it's like, uh, flies to honey. Like I'm just like, I put the honey over there and they can't resist fighting it. Cause so when you talk in the book, especially about, you know, the way that not entirely, but a lot of the time it's been like young women who push a lot of the changes, right? But they're pushing the changes, you know, through the conversations they're having, right? They're just living. Absolutely. You know, and I think of that in contrast, and, and of course, then it's not just young women and young women of color and so forth, depending on the context. Uh, and I think about the contrast between that and the people in ivory towers who are trying desperately to hold on to certain forms and stuff and not just socially just preferred, but they're also lying to themselves because they can't actually stop this language from changing. Like they, they've never been able to stop it and they will never be able to stop it. Uh, and the only thing that they, it would be best for them to do is to acquiesce to these things. So that's a lot of points I made there, but that's sort of my impression and what I was thinking about as I was reading it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of my goal is to help people along uh, with a gentle prod. What about sometimes people need to have not only the discussion about what they're doing might be biased and prejudiced, but also they need to have some facts put before them that are incontrovertible proof that those biases are not founded in fact. And I think what I was hoping to do with my book is take the best of scientific studies in my field, um, which is a very, I would say, activist field in general. And so I think a lot of what you're talking about in the ivory tower is not true of a lot of sociolinguists because their goal is the whole point of clarifying the relationship of language to society. But I, I think what I wanted to do is, is say, okay, let me remind you of where these things came from so you can see how these ideas you have developed from these these prejudiced notions that we've had for centuries. And if you can see the root and you can see the seeds planted and how it came to be that these ideas of goodness and badness, these ideas of prescriptivism were really based on white upper class norms in Britain in the 18th century, driven by sociocultural contexts of the time, like the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the middle class, the uh, immigration, vast immigration into London, then maybe people will start to understand how their beliefs are really just that, their beliefs and not facts. And that was really one of my goals in this book is to try to present the evidence historically and scientifically so that people could judge for themselves whether they are on the right side of these views they have about language. And hopefully they, they changed a few people's minds. I hope so too. I think what you're, what you're hitting on there is something that I talk about a lot in my own work about language ideologies, right? You know, because these things, they don't just exist in the ether, right? They're, they're supported by the way people think about them. And the only way I think to challenge ideologies is to make people understand that what they thought was just a fact is something that they believe. And to be clear, uh, we are not presenting or you are not presenting it as such that what we're talking about is not an ideology. It's just an ideology in support of different people, right? There is no such thing as being without ideology, right? Or be it without bias. It's just like, okay, so what do you do with that? Where do you go from there, right? Um, and you're right about sociolinguists being sort of like 
let's actually push these things forward, but you still get those people who are, let's just say, they call themselves for, <clears throat> formal linguistics, uh, and they, <laughs> they, they, they might even not even, might look down on social linguistics altogether, right? Um, and, you know, but we've encountered a few of those, let's just call it that. Um, it's a problem, but, you know, hopefully, what I found interesting though, also, is that this is a book that is clearly written by an academic, because it says that. I mean, I know that, but also, like, it's clear, right? And you are bringing forth, you know, research that people who don't have these research skills would not have been able to find very easily, right? The same way that whenever I – um there's a couple of podcasts I listen to that are about books and sort of debunking stuff. And like the quickest debunking is there's no citations. They're just making stuff up. So clearly there's an academic who knows what they're doing, but it's not an academic press, right? Like Viking, right? So what I find interesting about that is that that's a tough tightrope to walk. To give this complex information to people who will not necessarily have the grounding to have made this sort of effort to get into this sort of experience. And I think that that was something I wanted to sort of touch on, like bringing academic work into the mainstream, because it's a big issue. Academics, we love to say that people don't listen to us and that we don't talk to anybody outside of our group <laughs> and, it, and it gets sort of swallowed up. So, Well, and I was one of those. I have to admit when I first, you know, I'm a hardcore researcher. I get all my grant money from the National Science Foundation. So I, you know, I think part of, the problem is the, the ideas of academics, the ideas of what we learn is that we are untouchable. What we learn, what we study is untouchable, and that is what makes us special in some ways, that we do these things that are, um, you know, technical and complex and field-specific and ha in conversation with other people in our fields, but not in conversation with people outside them very often. And and we sort of inculcate that kind of attitude in the fields, and certainly when you go get a doctorate, what you're getting is um, buy-in into that field. What you're getting is status in that field. And that makes you feel good at a certain point when you get out there and you have your shiny diploma and you go out and do research and you're getting grant money from a, you know, big scientific um, foundation. But what I, I came to realize after a number of years of doing that kind of research, which I did well, I, I, I have a good reputation from a science perspective, and I felt like it was hollow because I wanted to know what it meant you know, when people would ask me what I did and I'd say, oh, I study, you know, changes in speech across time, particularly vowels, you know, how our vowels are changing without people knowing it. You know, people are like, oh, that's cool, whatever. You know, it's just I realized what does what's the impact of what I'm doing? And there is an impact, but rarely do we articulate it. And um, one of the things I think I got more and more interested in in my own work and with grad students that were particularly interested in this was the impact of the things I studied on things like um, natural language processing models and undersourced and um, underrepresented dialects and the fact that, for example, Southerners are much less understood by automatic voice recognition because they're, they're, we have attitudes about them and stereotypes about them. They don't make up the kind of training data that those companies typically use, and nor do um, many dialects and languages that have fewer speakers. And so I became more aware of the need to bring what we know from studies, because sometimes people would say stuff, and I'm like, that's so stupid. We know that's not true. But how they don't know it's not true, and they don't have any voices from our side of the white tower telling them, no, here's why that's not an accurate assessment. So I thought, well, if if 
this is a problem, then what am I doing to solve it? And that's really what gave me the idea as I talked to people and they would come up and I'd give this talk about my research to public audiences. And, you know, they think it was interesting, but they'd always come up and ask me questions about things that had nothing to do with what I'd presented and things that were in their world. And I realized I haven't given them the tools to see how what I just talked about relates to what they're asking me about. And it's the same thing. They just don't understand it. So that's when I thought, well, let me try this path of, of going for, I mean, the, you know, I went to Penguin Random House, so it's not like I decided to go to an academic press. I went full force on let's talk to, to everyday people. I wasn't sure how well I would do at it because it's a big transition in writing that style, but um, I had great mentors um, and my editor at Penguin Random House truly believed in the book because she comes from a dialect background where she has received some, you know, uh, prejudice in her own experience and had an experience with her parents receiving that as non-native speakers. Uh, and I think and that's really a lot of what brought me to this place. So she believed in it. She really helped me along. And I think I've been hopefully successful at unpacking the science that people don't have access to that really relates to life every day and speech every day and the, the prejudice and bias that they've experienced or that they put on other people. And that was really my goal here is to bring it to a wider audience. Academics have really embraced the book. I've had a lot of colleagues that said, oh, this is a great book, but that's not really who I was writing it for. I was writing it for everyday people who are just curious about language. Well, I think that's what you said there at the end is a key part of it, because I understand in our careers, and I don't actually have an academic career, I work for a nonprofit, but um, if one has a traditional academic career, like, you know, goes on the CV, right, you know, and so, like, I understand why people will write these academic books, I mean, I wrote one, uh, but if you look at it the other way, as you just mentioned, if you can reach other people, academics will still come along, which right. is not the case when you go in the other direction, right? Like if you write specifically for an academic audience, you're not getting everybody else. But if you find a way to communicate to the rest, academics, I mean, aside from the very snooty ones, but the ones who are interested in, in communicating these ideas to the world, they want their ideas communicated to the world. So that's why, and I understand that everybody's well suited for it. So, you know, I'm not going to say everybody go do this. And then that every publisher is going to take it up. Maybe the idea is bad. I don't know, but, uh, I find it that's sort of what I found particularly valuable about it. I mean, like some of the history I knew just because I've done similar language research. I'm not saying that to be like dismissive. It's just like, I, it was good to see it all put in a way that I think that it's hard to do a hypothetical of like, if I didn't know these things, would this be helpful to me kind of thing, right? But I was trying to do that, right? To sort of take my own expertise out of it and say like, is this something that would communicate to me if I was just, I don't know, somebody. And I think that that's actually true. You know, I think not only is it, um, what's a good way to describe what I'm about to say? Uh, you know, there's a person in there. You know, I think that that's one of the things I really don't like about the way a lot of academics are taught to communicate, right? Because this is not how people naturally communicate. It's how academics are taught to communicate is there's no people in there. You know, in the writing, in the in the work, and I I understand even when we're writing about people, somehow it seems like there's no people involved. It's just data, uh, and I understand why that's the case. But you know, I feel like if you're writing for anybody outside of an academic context, you have to be in that book. You are in it whether you want to be in it or not. 
So it's best if you actually acknowledge it and bring yourself into it so that you can understand, so people can understand your connection to the material. And then they will have a way to get into the material if they can see how interested you are in it. Not everyone's going to be interested in it, but I feel like that makes it uh, much easier for people to connect with. So I appreciated that about it in that it wasn't just like, here's an introduction and then I disappear from the book for the rest of the book. Right. Like you were in there, you were relating things to actually things that happened in your life and talking about your child and all that. Right. Like I, I find that to be I feel like it's almost impossible for something like nonfiction that's based on science, uh, but is attempting to communicate to a mass market uh, to work if this person isn't there. Absolutely. I think, you know, that's one thing. It was a voice driven book and that was how we, um, my agent definitely wanted me to shape it. And I can't help it. That's just my personality. I think my students will tell you I'm a very voice driven teacher too. We have a lot of fun in my classes because learning can be fun. It can be entertaining and laughing at yourself and laughing at your situation and laughing at the world is part of what the joy of living is. And so I really tried to bring that joy into the book and the joy that my students and I have together, because sometimes I'll teach, you know, standard linguistics, which let me just say is not the most exciting of fields, right? When you're learning phonetics and phonology and morphology and semantics. But I think my students will say that we have a really good time when we do it because I bring fun things into it. I bring their life into it. I let them bring their experiences into it. And we talk about how this relates to them. And then we have fun with sort of silly things that have happened to them, you know, morphological things that they say, you know, we, we sometimes take slang and we'll do morphological analysis or I tell them to bring in pop songs that show phonetic assimilation. You know, we try to make it um, fun and, and part of their experience. And so I really tried to bring that into the book. And I'm sort of, you know, I joke that I would have been a comedian had I not been a linguist. So this gave me the opportunity to be a little bit of both so I could make it funny and, and silly and, you know, all that stuff. And also about my own experience and, and how this I came to be interested in language myself because I wasn't born at five thinking, oh, I want to be a linguist. I was shaped into somebody who found that this would be helpful in my life. And I wanted to make sure that came out in the book. Yeah, I think it did. And I, I wanted to mention what you said there about sort of the dry standard stuff, right? Sentence trees, all of that. Right. And like, it's funny because I wonder what the difference in my language related career would have been if the first linguistics professor I ever had didn't do the exact opposite of what you did. Like, because I, I was an English major, but not like language, like literature. Right. And so I was like, well, you know, linguistic, you know, OK. I didn't know anything about it. It was intro class. Um, and I take it and, and he was exactly like what like the the, the worst thing with the droning lecture whatever i couldn't find my way into it i'm just like why should i care about this um and then we all kind of did pretty poorly on the midterm and he blamed it on us uh like he came to the class afterwards and said you're all not trying hard enough and then and then we went to the department we were like what the hell and they were like yeah he's kind of like that but he's the chair of the department so there's not a whole lot we can do about it uh I'm sure, because I don't even remember his name. I'm sure he's published some stuff that's 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 useful, and otherwise you don't get to that place. But uh, but I, I literally don't remember the man's name. So anyway, then when I went to my master's program for TESOL, right, because um, I taught English for a couple of years, and then I said, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm going to get a master's. And you have to do that. And I was so, like, traumatized from that first experience that when I had a professor who was, like, going through that stuff, I was like, I don't want to do this. Uh, but... Just like you're saying, bringing things in that are relevant to our life. I forget what the assignment was, but he was, you know, 
after doing the sentence tree stuff, he was talking about um, bring in something from your life where we can do this sort of analysis. And for whatever reason, I brought in a, a, a an article about a baseball game because I, I like baseball, and I was doing you know the analysis on on the the news story about about the baseball game, and I was like, okay. All right, I, I can I can get here, and it was hard for me because it was a really challenging experience the first time. And I, you know, I it's not that it was so complex I couldn't understand it. It's just that I can't do a thing if I don't find it interesting. I can't. I mean, that's part of the ADHD thing. Like I can't get into it. Um, so I think that I don't know. First of all, more professors should be this way, right? I adjunct sometimes. My main job is not that, but when I do teach, I try to be that way as well. Um, and. The sad thing is that some people are surprised by it because so much, some professors don't do that. And they're like, this, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, which is a bigger question we don't have to deal with right now, but it's a shame. Uh, but I really do think that especially because there's going to be like some nuts and bolts stuff. It's just, just going to be there. Right. And that stuff is not going down easy unless there's a person who acknowledges that it's nuts and bolts stuff. Right. You're not pretending that this stuff is inherently exciting uh, unless it's connected to something like we said, pop songs or things like that, because one of the things I find valuable about language is for me, it's, it's, it's a little bit different from you, but not that different in that, like, I use my knowledge of language. And again, I'm a language teacher rather than a linguist, but you know what I'm saying, uh, to look at different axes of oppression that are like the language reflects it. But a lot of the time, it's the people that are using the language that are being oppressed, as you talk about in the book, right, who are ignored, who are things like that. We don't like those people, so how they talk is bad, you know? Right. That's exactly right. I mean, the, one of the reasons that we dislike change so much is not that change bothers us, but the people changing the language bother us. And so we misinterpret our our feelings towards the speakers as feelings towards those speech forms. And um, that allows us the prejudice that's not legally legislated, right? Because if we said, I don't like you and I'm not going to hire you, we couldn't get away with that. But if we can say, you don't talk in a way that I need for this business – there's no protection for you um, in that way. So, yeah, I think it's it's exactly that. That really our, our problem with language is really our problem with the speakers of that language. And because most of the people that introduce change into language are from groups that are dispreferred socially, then this is why language change gets spun up in this whole, this is the, um, you know, decay of language. This is the downfall of man, you know, that kind of thing. But just to your point about teachers and um, how we teach our teaching style. You know, I've always had that kind of style just because it's what makes teaching fun for me. I don't want to go in and be bored. I mean, I have had those days where I'm teaching something really dry and I'm like, God, I'm bored myself, kids, you know, where I, I recognize that it's true, but it's my personality. And I come to the role of being a professor as both a researcher and someone who does enjoy teaching. I think what people don't realize is, particularly at research institutions, teaching isn't that valued by the administration. It's really research and publication. And many people come to being professors not to be teachers, but to be researchers. And so their personalities may not be that that is entertaining in a classroom. I've had teachers that can be 
not necessarily entertaining, but really good teachers because they unpack material in very, that's very complex in ways that I can, that's accessible, but they're not fun teachers. They're just good explainers. So you don't have to all be funny and witty, but I think the trick is you have to be willing to take the time to put yourself in the audience, right? In the, the students' minds and think, how would this here, sound to me if I came to this with no background? How would this sound to me if I came to this with sort of maybe some resistance? How could I make it more palatable, more accessible, more interesting and engaging to someone who may not learn the way that everybody else learns? And not everybody wants to do that, uh, unfortunately. And, and I think that's really so it, it's can't, you know, universities, it's not in their interest to legislate teaching because that's not how they roll essentially. And so unfortunately, it's really trial by error of asking other students who's a teacher of that topic that can be interesting and engaging and make this material fun for me at the same time as educational. Yeah, you know, one of the, I thought about my own teaching, because like, although I've only taught like grad students more recently, like I've been teaching for like 15 years, right? Since I was like 21, when the students were like three years younger than I was. <laughs> and I did not know what I was doing. So like I hadn't, I, mean, I had like a week of training because when they send you overseas, you don't know what you're doing, which is, which is a problem, by the way, which I read about in my own book. I was like, they should not be sending us over there without training us at all. This is, it's not good. Um, but when you don't know what you're doing, you're improvising Right. And especially because I had community people who did not necessarily understand me because I was in a different country. And so I'm like, well, what will translate? Like just as a, as I don't just mean words, but like when I'm communicating with people, what will still get across? And I realized very quickly that like I made this whole PowerPoint presentation the first day and I'm, you know, all these slides, they did not respond to a single thing. And like, it's a 50 minute class. I finished presentation in like 15 minutes. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and, uh, I then started telling stories about myself and I made fun of myself and they all laughed. I was like, oh, okay. I, it took me until I went back and got my master's to know what I was doing, like scientifically in terms right, of pedagogically. The, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I figured out how to connect with the people. Um, and I'm not, not that I can connect with everybody, but I mean, generally how to connect with people in a classroom. And I think that First of all, people aren't really taught to teach. Even the ones who want to teach aren't really taught to teach in academia, unfortunately. They might be forced to teach, but that doesn't mean they're taught to teach. Uh, and this is my de degree is in education, right? My doctorate, right? Um, and so I think that that is one of the issues. So to go back to the book, though, because, you know, if I don't stop myself, I will go all the way off in this direction. But uh, what do you think was the most interesting part about writing it? Because when I wrote mine, like I was in like a fever dream. I wrote the whole thing really fast because I had no time. I mean, I gave myself no time. Uh, but for you, I am assuming that you were, you know, more professional than I was and actually took your time with it. I did. It took me about a year, a little, a little over a year to write. Um, and because it was very research intensive, because even though as a sociolinguist, I knew much of what I wrote about, it's different when you actually put it into a book where you want to source it, you want to be accurate. It was really important to me that I give recognition to the people whose ideas I was talking about. So I have a lot of endnotes and things like that. Uh, because it really is about raising up the work of many of my fellow linguists that is have been in the dark corners, uh, you know, closets. So they haven't been seen by the world, and and they're very important pieces of work. So 
I think the most interesting thing to me about writing the book was trying to figure out how to take all these different pieces of academic research that are not, that have a different story that they're trying to tell. So, you know, when you do an, an academic research project, you're trying to add to the, the volume of literature in on that topic, but there's no sequencing to it. There's no narrative to it. And so, but it was really important I give narrative to these features. And so it was kind of, I'd read, reread a lot of times, you know, a hundred articles for each chapter. And then it was taking those two or three weeks of just thinking about all the things that I had, you know, taken and how to combine them so that it had a story to tell. So it wasn't just like, here's a piece of research and here's a piece of research and here's a piece of research. But to understand the narrative behind all those pieces of research that hadn't ever been told before. So, for example, when I talk about dude, the evolution of the term dude, you know, certainly people have talked about the evolution of the term dude. But what they really haven't talked about is the story of why dude has changed so much in meaning. So, for example, in the late 1800s, dude was an effeminate dandy or fop who was really overly concerned with their clothes and very self-absorbed and self-affected, usually wealthy, um, always male, because you could have dudettes, but you, dudes were women. And it was only said, used in mockery or for ridicule, and it was a really bad thing to say about someone. So if you called someone a dude, that was not taken lightly and, in fact, inspired duels and defamation lawsuits and things like that. So how do we go from this dandy of a dude, which is actually short for doodle dandy from Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is a fascinating, fun fact, right? Um, it's fusing together of doodle and dandy to the dude of today that is cool and chill and sort of a sense of solidarity and camaraderie at this really laid back kind of level in a slightly nonconformist sort of way. How did we get that evolution? Well, what's really interesting is it all revolves around masculine, uh, that cultural norms for masculinity. And so really the dude of the 1800s and the dude of today are very similar in that they're both ways of calling out nonconformity with masculine cultural models. What has changed is the masculine cultural model, right? So at, in the 1800s, it was a very specific one, and it was being assaulted by changes in the sociocultural fabric of the time. Tur near the turn of the century, there was women's suffrage, right? Women were starting to be out in the public sphere. Their voices were being raised. They were being heard. It was an, an, an assail on masculine traditional family norms. In addition, we were having people like Oscar Wilde that were making more visible homosexuality. And so the dude, by calling someone a dude, you were essentially saying you're a woman, a womanly kind of man, right? We were basically talking about you're not meeting the cultural norms of masculinity. But then when dude got picked up by African-Americans during the Zoot Suit era and Mexican-American Pachuchos, it was being used. It was to call out each other when say, look, dude, we're look at us. We're standing out. We're subversive. We're standing out against this extreme cultural prejudice. So they flipped the meaning of dude, took it out of this context of literally white, wealthy, effeminate kind of foppiness, and they made it about the, their clothing style, their extreme fashion, and their sort of um, living on the edges of culture and being treated horribly for it. And that's what made the dude attractive to other subcultures like surfer and druggie subculture. 
which is again turning it on the head of what it means to be masculine. It means it's sort of that rebellious counterculture kind of edgy sort of attractiveness of that term. Again, about the norms of masculinity till modern era where it's sort of about being this macho dude, right? Where again, it's about cultural models for masculinity. So what I loved is as I was reading all the literature on dude, that's what came to me. It's, it's, it's all revolving around this one theme. So it's really united from this really cool thread of what it means to be a man in our culture and how that has changed over the last 100 or 200 years. And as that has changed, the meaning of dude has gone alongside it. But so that story was what was so fascinating to me to build together from all these different disparate pieces of research that didn't necessarily make that claim. But you bring it together and you can see it evolving as this beautiful narrative of what gave us the dude. So I think that was really fun, that kind of seeing the stories emerge from the different pieces of research. You know, I I like, there's two things you said there in terms of narrative and, you know, when you're citing things, because I hate these just sort of like checkbox citations that people do. And I understand in articles, a lot of the time it's like, people will say, hey, don't don't forget, you have to cite that one. And I, I get it, which is weird because like, my second article has sort of become that. If you're writing about whiteness and language teaching, people say that about my art. Like, you got to put that in. So I get citations all the time. And I'm like, did you even read the art? Anyway. Um, and I, you know, I, and look, no one's going to memorize everything about every article. It's impossible. But when I see a paragraph that's literally just like, and here's this, and here's this, and here's these five articles that said this, and there's these five articles that said that. I'm like, there is no way that in your one sentence, you, you're touching on something that's in all five of those articles. So I like that, especially when academics are writing, even within academia, but when they're writing for other people, where it seems like they're deeply engaged with the material and wanting the people who are reading their work to be engaged with the material, right? Because if I just see this long list, of sites, I'm not going to read the thing. I don't necessarily think that that's necessarily interesting. You know, I like that, you know, if you're bringing information in from something, not every single time, but, you know, you bring in some quotes from it, right? You know, obviously not every single time, it's not going to work in every sentence, right? But, like, there are people who, where there, there's never any quotes brought in, partially because there's nothing interesting in the writing, uh, but when you bring that into the, the, it seems like not only are you a person, but those researchers are people too, right? Even if they're not doing as good of a job of doing what you're doing in the book, still, it's like, oh, a real person was, 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 was going after a particular issue in this research. And that's why it's brought into this larger narrative. Right. Absolutely. And I think that that is a hard thing to do sometimes. Uh, in academics, it's really hard to be voicey at all. And, you know, there's a requirement that if anybody has ever done work on your topic, that they're in your article as a summary of here's the work on this topic. So you have one sentence and 20 different citations, half of which you've probably not read, but you just know they're seminal in that field and you have to mention them. So, yes, that is definitely a problem. And I absolutely did not put any of that in this book. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I mean. You don't have to do as much of that if you're if you're not writing for the academic thing, right? If you're doing an academic thing, like that's like the number one thing reviewers say. It's like you better you better. I'm like, all right, all right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's one of the the freedoms and the joys of writing outside of the purely academic space, you know. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that because that what you talked about the dude story both in the book and in the in the discussion we were just having, you see that a lot. Sometimes it's 
it's pretty cool like it is with dude, right? Sometimes it's used in, in, in not great ways, as you see with woke these days, right? Because, like, that is another word that we had. You could have just let us have it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, they call it semantic bleaching. I understand how these things happen, right? But um, it's really... It goes to show that even if it's not actually being used the way it was intended, still words coming from other cultures or, or, or disadvantaged cultures are affecting society in, in massive ways, right? Now, they're all mad about it, but they're not even really mad about the word. They're mad about what they think the word represents. And it's interesting to see, because if you wrote this book in 20 years, you could have chosen three different words. Probably not. So, you know, the like things still would be around and they'd still be happening. But you know what I'm saying? You could write this book in 20 years and do three different stories. Yeah, different yeah. topic. Yeah. And um, I think that that'll be really interesting to see, you know, as this book continues to spread around the space, the field, um, who takes this up? Because to me, that's always what I want with the work. It's like, I don't want to be the, the brick wall. You know, it's like I have closed the story off, right? Anyone who's really trying to connect with people should be like, you know, take this and run with it, right? So, like, where would you like to see uh, people go with with these narratives you're sharing in this book, right? What would you like to – what would you hope to see to to come out of this in terms of the discourse that may result? Well, you know, what I love is it actually has been picked up a lot by mainstream media. I, um, I've i been very, very fortunate with the publicity that the book has gotten. I think part of it's because it's um, somewhat of a controversial title to be arguing for the good and bad English, and that really has gotten people riled up. In fact, I got a message from one gentleman that heard me on an NPR show where it was an, a discussion about, you know, the idea of good and bad English that emailed me that he was going to buy me some insect repellent because I've stirred up a hornet's nest. <laughs> but that's the kind of discussion I want. You know, after I did NPR 1A, which was all about looking for the good and bad English, it was really about that topic of the book, which the book is about a lot more than that. So in some ways, I it makes me sad when that's the only focus, but it is a really important part of the book. Um, and so we did a whole show, an hour on NPR about that. And I, my, my email lit up after that with people who felt very strongly that they disagreed with me. But what was interesting is, is I only got out of the 60 or 70 emails I got after that, I only got two that were truly nasty, um, that were really just delete. I'm not even, I can't even believe those people would be that upset that they would insult me and, you know, my family in the ways they did. It was ridiculous. But, the majority of them were were things that started off, you know, I don't agree with that. I feel like I, people are using language in bad ways. And here's what bothers me. And they give me an example. And I wrote every single person back. And I gave them some linguistic science for what they said. So a lot of them would say something like, I don't like the way people are saying street as street, you know, or string as string. I had at least three people say that. And I wrote them with, okay, well, actually, we've done some research on that. Here's why that happens, and here's what it means, and here's what other world Englishes we find it in. And I had several of them write me back and say, wow, that's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way. I'm going to go tell so-and-so. That's the kind of conversation I want. You may not be convinced by my argument. You may still dislike, but I think it's okay to dislike things. I don't think it's okay to call them bad because bad is a moral judgment. Disliked is a personal judgment. And I'm not telling anybody they have to like any of these features. I'm just telling them you have to realize that's your own personal preference, and that has nothing to do with the speakers that use them. 
who you make a moral judgment about because you don't like the way they talk. Um, and so I have had several people come to me and tell me that they were at a dinner party and somebody started talking about language and someone said, oh, I just heard this really interesting uh, person on NPR or I read about it in the Wall Street Journal and they said, blah, blah, blah. And it was my article or my interview they were talking about where it got them talking and thinking about language in a different way. I'm not going to change things overnight, but at least that there's conversation that I'm hearing about the things I've talked about in the book. And I think I've made it fun and interesting enough that even the naysayers are a little bit intrigued by some of the topics. And I think that's my goal is just to get people talking. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, you know, being a black person who writes about racism, I've gotten some emails. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> and, but I actually used one of the racist emails as the conclusion of my book. So um, just to, first of all, point out to people who thought I was kidding about the things that I get. And also because in his email, he was proving my point, not the racism, but the points he was making were exactly what the book was about. He hadn't read the book. He just thought talk. So that was really interesting. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to use this, you know? Um, but in terms of, I think that that's really, I saw his Facebook groups, which once you start looking at Facebook groups, you're always in trouble. But yes. <laughs> Facebook groups, I see sometimes that I'm not in, but I see like people are in them. So I see them on the page. And like, there's a person I know who has a fairly prominent role in one of these language organizations. Right. And it's one of those like, what are your English pet peeves like things? And they're just all listing things. Now, again, as you said, it's not you can have your visceral reaction. There's not a whole lot I can do about that in the moment. However, if you're not in the middle of that reaction, it's worth unpacking why you're having that reaction. Because to me, it's not the specific thing. Okay, maybe you read the book and you come around on like and literally and dude and some of the other words that are mentioned here. And then you still have that visceral reaction with other things. It's like that general impulse, right? Like the the list of these are particular words that are across our society, right? But like, there's always going to be more. So it's more like how do we fight that, that or or at least understand the impulse to shame language in general, right? Like that's what I always hope with these things. It's like this is a particular set of examples that have been backed up with evidence. But like if you just are like, all right, she proved her point there, but I'm going to move on to the next word, then you may really listen. So like I want to get people to really think about that as a broader thing, you know? Right. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of these people that emailed me just heard me on an interview. They didn't read the book because uh, what was really important in my book is that these are features that are exemplifying larger processes. And I make it really clear in the book that there's an arc. If we look at what these features all have in common, it's that they are basically attitudes towards disadvantaged groups in society. And um, because those are the leaders of language change, those are the innovators in language. And I explain why that is, why historically it's lower classes and women and subcultures and minority groups that tend to lead in language change. And so I try to make it really clear. These are just a few examples of these larger processes that operate all the time and make us biased in all our judgments when we hear these things. And then the other really important part is to let help people see how so many of the things they say and take as standard today were the features that were reviled and argued against as decay of English because they came from exactly the groups you're against today two centuries ago. 
And if people can see like, oh, I didn't know a progressive form. I didn't realize lower classes, that was really something they did. Or when I delete the na in je ne parle pas in French, that that's actually something that's a lower class innovation, you know, or it comes from a, a, a drag culture or whatever. Then all of a sudden you can start saying, okay, well, there's a pattern here. And that's what I want people to really take away. It's not the specific words that I'm talking about. It's the pattern it's the larger pattern. That's really what I try to keep coming back to in the book. This is a pattern. Do you see the pattern? Here's the pattern. Let me beat you over the head with that pattern because it's the pattern that's the problem, not the words themselves. I mean, it's exactly because whenever you talk about this with people who won't really want to listen, they're just like, another thing I can't say. All right. I'm just like, I mean, prob- obviously, like literally dude aren't on that list, but you know what I'm saying? It's just like, probably you shouldn't say that word. But if you just replace it with a different word, you didn't really do anything better. It's the same thing like when I think about and I understand why this linguistic change is being pushed. It's like when people talk about, well, we should say unhoused individuals instead of homeless people. It's like, okay, maybe, but I would, I think they'd rather have a home than than you changing your words. Like if you're still going to treat them poorly, I really don't think they care. Like in the English language teaching industry, we talk about people as as English language learners. We used to say ESL, now we say ELL, and now they're saying we should say multilingual learners. And I'm like, okay, but are you going to treat them better? Because <laughs> because I don't really think they're going to care that much if you just change the acronyms. Right. I think we do get too bound up in in sort of this renaming process without addressing the underlying principles and patterns that drive it to where it is. You know, I think there are some places where words are very hurtful and painful and they should be changed. So, you know, I, I live near Tahoe where we had Squaw Mountain and now it's Palisades. And even though there was some pushback, if you look at the history of that word, it's a horrific word. I mean, it basically was dirty prostitute. That's what it was. Now, who wants to go ski dirty prostitute hill? And um, I can understand why from a Native American perspective, that's an incredible, painful reminder. And so those things need to be changed. But doing things like I also love how homemade has become housemade now and things like that to make it sound a little more she-she. It's funny how language, you know, is always put in these different boxes because we we think, oh, if we change the language, it will change the attitudes. But the attitudes need to change to change the attitudes. And um, language can go hand in hand with that. But it that, doing that alone doesn't do it. And I think there's a difference. And this is where I think we need to be clearer. My students often bring this to me when we're talking about language in my sociolinguistics class. How do we know what words we can say and what we can't? And I, I say, it's not a matter of that. I said, it's understanding the history behind the words you say. And I said, so many words we say, we don't understand their histories. Thousands of words, we don't understand the histories. And that's okay. But, but the trick is when you're borrowing from a minoritized group, when you're borrowing from a group that, you know, has been culturally treated badly, and then you're using those words in a way that further treats them badly, then you have to be careful. I said, if you're using those words in a way that doesn't do that, that's a different story. And I don't think anybody's saying we don't all own language together. But I think what people are saying is what you have to be careful about how you put those words to work so that you're not reifying and redoing the damage that's already been done from the appropriation of those words in the first place. And and that's a really tricky thing, I think, for people to understand. And you know, I think woke is a good example of that, where it's been appropriated and put to work in a harmful way. But um, things like slay, which my daughter says all the time without any knowledge of where it comes from, though I remind her regularly, 
you know, it's young adolescents trying to be cool and trying to find their place in a social hierarchy that's really hard, that in middle and high school. And they're not doing, they're not appropriating that word in a way that has any, any kind of detrimental um, effects on the originators of the term. And so I think it's important that they know where the word comes from just so they know how to value different cultural, um, you know, borrowings. But I, th- I think that's a different call than when you are doing a Saturday Night Live skit and you're using slay to personify dumb Gen Z people, because then you're actually personifying an African-American term in a negative pejorative way again. And so, you know, there's really fundamental differences in representation by those two different uses of the same word. I mean, yeah, like the worst that can happen when young people do it in that sense is that, you know, they might look a little cringy, but like, you know, that's just, I mean, that just happens with young people sometimes and older folks That is pretty much high school. High school is pretty much cringy. (laughs) So, you know, that's not, uh, and also there's not, there is, relative power amongst different groups of young people, but there's not as much societal power, even though it is them that does the influencing on the language. They do not tend to have the societal power at the time that they're influencing the language, which I think is one of the interesting things about the book and about all of this is that the people without power still have power over us. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like it. Absolutely. I mean, it's incredibly powerful. And I think what we don't realize is these features that we tend to love to hate are very purposeful and very powerful and not purposeful in terms of agentive. I don't mean that people are thinking about using them in those ways, but they emerge because they serve purposes and because they do lend social power. That's not maybe prestigious. It's not institutional but it's more important than that because institutional power is always fought against. But the type of social power that just arises naturally, that's an incredibly big power to harness. And adolescents have that in spades. And that's really where the magic work of language change happens. It's in adolescence, whether it's adolescent women or adolescent African-American young men or adolescent, um, you know, teens more generally, they are putting social nuance on the things that will become the norms of our future. All right. Well, Dr. Friedman, uh, this was a really fascinating conversation about uh, what I think is a really fascinating book that I recommend everybody get. The link is in the show notes for those who would like to check it out. So uh, I hope that you all do. And it is, like I said, not an academic book in that sense, which means it doesn't cost $5,000. So, <laughs> and to know, put you to sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, I, 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 it doesn't make any sense. Um, so uh, thank you for being here with me. If you have a, a final thought you might want to share with the listeners about the book or just about um, the work that you're doing, this would be the time. But otherwise, uh, you know, thanks for being here. Absolutely. It was really a pleasure to talk with you and and keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Well, thank you for that. And everybody else, I'll be back in two weeks like I always am.